but man, I really love our young adults because I'd say the main conviction I get for that one is first is I'm still in my young adult years, right, uh, still. And I'll say the haunting question, the question that I think about the most would be, what is the meaning of all this? What's my life worth? Am I making the most of my life? Am I making the most of my time? And I remember, like when I was in college, I had a college roommate, and he wasn't a believer, and I asked him a question. And his answer to that question was one of the most profound statements I'd ever heard from anybody. He was an atheist, and I said, JT, what if God is real? Have you ever thought about that? And his answer was this. He said, well, if he was real, then I'd better get serious about finding out what he wants from me. And that was such a profound answer because I think we have so many believers, even in the room now, they're not getting serious about finding out what God really wants for them. What is God calling you to? What is the conviction in your life? How do we avoid the danger of apathy and coming here Sunday to Sunday but never really changing? We need to avoid the danger of apathy. And, man, as, especially with our young adults as a pastor, I would love to walk you through this because there's so much meaning to life whenever you find purpose and community and people that love you and that you're on mission running towards the same thing. And whether you're 12 or 90 in this room, I would say this, we're all in danger of living lives that are meaningless with apathy. The late Billy Graham uh, talked about this in a sermon. I wanted to show you a quick clip of how he talked about this. So check this out. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. If I told, if someone had told me when I was 20 years old that life was very short and would pass just like that, I wouldn't have believed it. And if I tell you that, you don't believe it either. I cannot get young people to understand how brief life is, how quickly it passes. It seems like yesterday I was in school. Every one of us here has been given the same amount of time in a day. 1,440 minutes a day, 168 hours per week. 70 years God allows us. And it's interesting to me with all of our medical science, We've never passed that magic mark. The average American male today lives 70 years and four months. The average female, 73 years and six months. More people live to be 70, but the average age of an American is still 70 as taught in the scriptures. What a thing it is when you think that you have just one short life to spend. I'd write down my priorities in life. And I'd get committed to certain priorities. Now is the accepted time. The things we ought to do, the classes we ought to take, the books we ought to read. Do it now. The family that needs you, spend more time now. Write that letter home now that you've been meaning to write. Money you ought to give, give now. Time for study, do it now. People you ought to witness to, do it now. Every time the clock ticks, it seems to say now, today, if you will hear his voice. There may not be a tomorrow for you. 
me because there's a warning for time. Time is running out for all of us. Time is too short for indecision and vacillation. Do not halt between two opinions. Fools say that time is long. Every morning we have 86,400 seconds to spend and to invest. And each day the bank named time opens a new account for you and for me. It allows no balances and no overdrafts. If you fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is yours. The Bible says redeem the time because the days are evil. And the days in which we're living are very evil. If there was ever a time for the gospel that can transform the human heart, it's now. Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him that sent us. The night is coming when no man can work. The night is going to come in your life. Yet there was a serenity about the work of the Lord Jesus. It's the quality of life, not the length. Jesus only had 33 years. And it ended on the cross. To the world, he was a failure at that moment. Yet at the end of his life, he said, I finished the work that thou gavest me to do. It doesn't matter whether you live another year or two years or five years. Will your work be finished? Is there a quality to it? Is there a dedication to it? Suppose all of our members tithe their time to witness for Christ as we tithe our income for the church. Fill your heart with the word of God. I've found that those who know the scriptures are the ones that have the power today. But we need men and women who walk with God. And if you do that, you too can finish the work that God gave you to do help us to realize the brevity and the urgency of time and may we invest what little time we have in the kingdom of God oh the danger of apathy the danger of wasting your life but what does it take for us to get beyond that point what does it take for us to get the wake-up call if you will it's got to take conviction it's got to take conviction. It's got to take a voice uh, to stop us from our tracks and wake us up. And the story that we're going over today is found in Acts chapter 9. is a story of Paul, and many of you guys know Paul. Now, Paul did so many amazing things. Man, he wrote more than half of the New Testament. He took so many missionary trips, bringing the gospel throughout the Roman Empire to Gentiles. Ended up dying for his faith. In terms of Christianity, man, Paul did so many amazing things. Heck, I've even got some of his words tattooed on me, Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul's life was amazing. In the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So in terms of maximizing time, if anybody understood this, it was Paul. So that's the story we, we look at is his conversion. What made Paul understand this? Because before Paul was a Christian, he was actually opposing Christians. He was on the other side. It says that he ravaged the church, entering the homes of believers and committing them to prison. Saul's anti-Christian zeal motivated him. Not only, not only to arrest and imprison males, but to lock up female believers as well. So before Paul was doing amazing things for God, he was opposing Christianity and persecuting Christians. What got him to change? 
There was a lawyer some time ago named Frank Morrison who said that, man, his goal was to contradict and overturn Christianity. But to do so, he would need to overthrow two stories, two biblical events. He would need to contradict those and confound those. The two stories were first, the resurrection of Christ, and second, the conversion of Saul. But after doing his research, he found the evidence overwhelmingly true for not just the resurrection of Christ, but the conversion of Saul, and he gave his life to Christ. So this story matters. The conversion of Saul matters because it was a convicting voice that changed him, stopped him in his tracks, and got him the wake-up call to maximize his time for life. So we got to look at the story. In Acts chapter 9, to set up the premise, Paul is doing what he was doing, persecuting Christians. He is hot on the trail of believers. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I mean, can we pause there for a second? Like, he was breathing out murderous threats. Can you think about the imagery here? We think about a predator that's panting, getting ready to pound on his prey. I mean, this guy was bad man Paul. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way that were Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So this is the voice right here, the life change that he has. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Bad man Saul. Bad man Saul. My first point is this, that God's voice calls out to the broken. God's voice calls out to the broken. Do you know anyone in your life that's like the least likely to follow Christ? Maybe you know a Christian that you're like, I don't know how they ever became a Christian. That's crazy. John Newton was an Englishman who lived in the 18th century. John Newton was a bad man. He was originally a slave, but then became a slave trader, even owning his own ship. He was the captain of that ship. He was a bad man, trafficking thousands of Africans. The great blasphemer, as he called himself, went to a life so depraved that even his own shipmates found it to be shocking. He wrote this. What a wretched life I lived, how far I was from God and the life he intended for me. I was lost. But on March 21st, 1748, John Newton experienced something that would change his life forever. There was a violent storm that came through the night as he was on his ship. I mean, it was so violent that, that people on the ship were getting grabbed by the wave and thrown into the water. And John managed to, to run up to the stairs and grab a hold of the steering wheel he didn't know whether he was going to live or die. He said this prayer, Lord, have mercy on us. And he spent 11 hours steering the wheel, and finally the storm calmed down. God answered his prayer and had mercy on him on that day. And he later on became an abolitionist and a minister of the gospel. God took him from, from his slave trading days to actually setting people free and transformed him. He experienced the grace of God. And he would later on write one of the most famous hymns of all time. Of all time. I once was lost. Amazing grace. I once was lost. 
but now I'm found. His tombstone reads this. He wrote it. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, which means a person, especially a man who behaves without moral principles or a sense of responsibility, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. So this is a man who was so broken, went off course completely. Or we think about the Apostle Paul, man, persecuting Christians, but God changed their lives, transformed them, and set them on the right track. If we learn anything, is that God's voice calls out to the broken. Now, it's easy to hear this message and be like, yeah, yeah, God's voice calls the, the broken people that were so bad and non-believers, and it's cool that grace works in them. But God's voice calls out to all of us. If you're a Christian in the room, here's one thing I've learned. You're going to go through some stuff that you need grace for every single day of your life. You need grace every single day. God's voice is calling out to us every single day. You need grace. I read this on Facebook because it's, it's the great place to find great quotes. <laughs> it wrote this. When I was 28, I believed I could change the world. At 48, I've come to the realization that I cannot change much of anything to say nothing of the world. Try as I might, I have not been able to manufacture outcomes the way I thought I could, either in my own life or other people's. Shattered dreams, relational tension, the loss of friendships, divorce, failure, rebellious teenagers, the death of loved ones, whatever it is for you, live long enough, lose enough, suffer enough, and the idealism of youth fades, leaving behind the reality of life in a broken world as a broken person. Life has had a way of proving to me that I'm not so far up that I thought I was going when I was 28. Instead, my life has looked more like this. Try and fail, fail then try. Try and succeed, succeed then fail. Two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, three steps back. Every year I get better at some things, worse at others. Some areas remain stubbornly static. And to complicate matters even more, when I honestly acknowledge the ways I've gotten worse, it's actually a sign that I may be getting better. And when I become proud of the ways I've gotten better, it's actually a sign that I've gotten worse. And round and round we go. If this sounds like a depressing sentiment, it isn't meant to be one. Quite the opposite. If I'm grateful for the past, for anything for the past 20 years, it's the way that God has wrecked my idealism about myself and the world and replaced it with a realism about the extent of his grace and love, which is much bigger than I had ever imagined. Indeed, the smaller you get, the smaller life makes you. The easier it is to see how big grace is. While I'm far more incapable than I may have initially thought, God is indefinitely much more capable than I could have ever dreamed. May I never forget what God saved me from. May I never forget how much grace I need today. May I never forget that my sins have been cleansed by grace and they're being cleansed every single day that I'm made new. God's voice is calling out to each and every single one of us. And in his grace, is ready to pour out over your life. Second point, God's voice calls you to the broken. 
So we have a dramatic situation happening here with Paul, right? I mean, this man is persecuting Christians, but gets stopped by a voice, gets blinded by the voice. On the other side of town, we have a different man who God's voice is actually talking to also. We pick up in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord calls him in a vision and says, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So God calls Ananias, who's Christian, to go help out the guy that's killing Christians. And Ananias is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you talking about bad men, Saul? Like, you want me to go talk to the guy? I might die. Like, you want me to go talk to him? Like, that's a scary ask. Let's be honest. That's really scary. But God said, yeah, I want you to go to him. God's voice calls you to the broken. We live in a world where we're so good at protecting ourselves, aren't we? Like, man, we got gated communities. and like, We got, like, all these extra things. Like, we're very good at self-protection. And we have a really low tolerance for people sinning against us. I was watching a video. This man was with his family in an SUV, and he turned on his windshield wipers, and the windshield fluid flew on somebody else's car. And that other person followed this man while he was with his family and shot at his tires. Like, how crazy of a world it is that if you inconvenience me, I can shoot you. How crazy of a world that is. You know, my dad set a great example for me in this. Like, many of you uh, don't know this, but I was actually born in Haiti. I came here when I was 10 years old. And, man, I love Haiti. Haiti's, like, like the home. Like, I, I go back there, and I just enjoy the place now. But if I can be real with you, my last year living there, and, heck, even the first year I moved to America, like, I resented it. I didn't like it. I hated it. I mean, when I was five years old, it was the first time I saw a dead body. Like, outside my house, we were on our way to school, and this man got shot the night before, and his body was just there. And then on the way back from school, eight hours later, his body was still there. No cops, no investigators, nothing. Like, dehumanizing. At eight years old, it was the first time, like, I saw a gun pointed towards my direction. Me and my dad and my mom uh, and uh, my sister were outside leaving a friend's house, and then this man uh, pulls up in a taxi cab and gets out of the car and points the gun at another man. And my dad steps up and said, hey, you can't do that here. We've got kids here. And then he proceeded to point the gun towards us. And my dad told us to run inside, and we did. We covered our heads. And I didn't know if I was ever going to see my dad ever again. To go further, like the last year there, it was, man, it was like the usual. Like my dad would come every single day and talk about, like, man, like, yeah, my coworkers' kids just got kidnapped. Or I'll go to school and see, like, a friend was missing and find out that they were being held for ransom. And, uh, or whether it's just driving through uh, the road and there's riots and you're hearing gunshots and tear gas. I mean, it was just crazy. So, like, there was a lot of work I had to do emotionally as a 10-year-old 
to actually have love for this place or for this season in my life. But you know what changed my heart? I remember, like, when I went back over there eight years later when I was 18, and uh, I was in the car with my dad, and uh, I remember we got stopped at a checkpoint, and then, uh, and then this, this cop was giving us a hard time, and, and, and my dad just gave us some money, and we're on our way. And I, like, I was in the back. I was just, like, furious. I was like, man, this is what's wrong with this place. I just can't believe this. And, uh, uh, and my dad was so jovial about the whole thing. He's like, ah, they don't get paid enough. And I was like, what? What do you mean, man? Like, I so desperately wanted him to, to leave and to come uh, live with us because, like, even for the first year I moved here, every single day because he stayed behind, I feared for his life. But this man just loved the place. He genuinely loved the people in the place. There are just some people that are just so naturally good at this. It's just loving places and things that seem messy. You know, my wife does a pretty good job of that. She, uh, she works in Kansas City, inner city, and, and like the story she tells me about the kids, I'm like, wow, like, you're putting up with that? That's crazy. Like, I don't have the patience for that. But some people are just so good at getting this, and it's inspiring. God calls us to broken people and to broken places. There's a story about one of the most famous missionaries ever in the 1950s. His name was Jim Elliott. Now, right out of college, Jim and his friends decided that they were going to go to one of the most unreached tribes in South America, to the Alcas people. And uh, so Jim and his friends go over there, and everybody's telling them, this is crazy. Like, you guys shouldn't do this. It's dangerous. These people are vicious. You're going to get killed. And he said, I'll do it anyways. And so uh, they took their families and they, mo they moved to a village nearby. And after a few months of communicating with the Alcas people, they decided, these guys, the husbands, decided that it was time to leave their, their, their families behind and actually engage the Alcas people. So they did. They got on a plane and landed on a river on a beach nearby. But on the sixth day, Alka's men came out with spears and killed all of them. All the husbands were dead. Now, most people don't know this, but Jim Elliott actually had a gun in his pocket. So he could have self-protected. Spears versus the guns, no match. But he chose not to. You know why? Because he made a pact with all those other guys, his friends, that they would not kill Alka's people who did not know Jesus to save themselves when they knew Jesus. How crazy is that? The story gets better. It gets better. Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, decides to go back a year later to preach the gospel to Alka's people that killed her husband. She decides to go back and finish the work that Jim started. I mean, how crazy, like how much love do you got to have to still want to bring the gospel to people that killed your husband. You want to know what happened next? The first people, some of the first people that believed were actually the men that killed her husband. You want to know what they said? They said, when we saw how your husbands laid down their lives, we knew we had killed holy men. Tell us about your God. 
So God used the fact that Jen decided to lay down his right to self-protect. God used the fact that Elizabeth decided to lay down her right to be bitter and angry to change that tribe. Sometimes the people that you want to love the least are the people that God wants to use the most. God's voice calls you to the broken. But God's voice is calling out to all of us today. Matter of fact, I'd say it's, it's all around us. God's voice is chiming at you every single day of your life, whether you're a believer or not. You want to know how I know that? Because we were created for more. As people, we instinctively understand Genesis chapter 1. Even though we may not say that God created it all, but there's still a longing inside of me that cries out for the voice of God. The Bible puts it like this, that God created us and has placed eternity in our hearts. Meaning that there's something inside of my heart that is crying out for the voice of God, for meaning. But I go off to every single other thing to try to find it and to try to satisfy it. God's voice is calling out to you today. He created you for more. If you're a believer, you need to just rest in that fact. If you're not, God's voice is knocking at you today. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me.